Welcome to Ukraine World Podcast. Ukraine World is a networking and communication initiative focused on Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. And today we're talking with Alessandra, editor-in-chief of Euromaidan Press, one of the most famous English-speaking websites about Ukraine. Ale, hello. Hello, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thanks so much for joining us. So we decided just to sum up uh, the key events, key trends in Ukraine in 2017 to reflect a little bit uh, upon the ev- events and developments and to understand where the country is going. Ayla, what is your impression about t- 2017? What are the key trends in your opinion? Well, my impression is that everybody has understood by now that there will be no miracle breakthrough in Ukraine. Um, after the revolution of dignity, there were very high expectations that the country will transform and become totally another country in a very short time. I think by now everybody understands that we're in for the long haul. And I think actually that this realization has been always with NGO activists in Ukraine because they understand the state of society that Ukraine is in and what we're dealing with. But I think that Basically, everybody now, <laughs> not only the activists, but everybody around, understands that Ukraine will not change as fast as we wanted it to. But don't you think that there is a regress, right? We, we see the authorities, which were kind of very high on this uh, pro-reformist agenda, but now the actions of probably 2017 was the first year after Euromaidan, where the actions against anti-corruption institutions, anti-corruption activists, anti this reformist camp was so visible well yes i think that like the the opposition was rather hidden before it wasn't as open but nevertheless of course it was there let's just remember how the anti-corruption institutions were established they faced a lot of resistance and they were established in such a, a long frame time frame because of the resistance of the authorities uh, but of course it wasn't as visible as now and we are basically facing the approaching election, presidential elections, parliamentary election. And basically, Ukrainian situation, I don't know if you agree with me or not, shows that when the political forces are mobilized into the election period, they kind of uh, uh, take a no-reformist agenda. Well, we can expect a lot more populist measures by the acting government and handouts that are not good for the economy, such as the raising of the minimum wage. That happened just with this recent um, budget. Um, I think Ukraine faces a real threat of revanchist and populist forces if um, the democratic democratic powers, democratic initiatives don't manage to produce some, something electionable for the next elections. So, yeah, and uh, this can be difficult. And uh, look at uh, the, the way how populists are, you know, uh, developing, uh, because we can, we, can, we can watch the phenomenon of Mikhail Saakashvili, which is kind of a very strange phenomenon, because on the one hand, uh, he expresses all this, you know, willingness and desire for anti-corruption policy, but at the same time, he's too simplistic, too... Uh, uh, too well, sometimes opportunistic and too populist, I would say. What do you think? Well, um, it's rather strange because uh, what he's saying, because first he led people to the streets calling to impeach Poroshenko, and that is why everybody came with their fury at 
what is happening in the country. And then he changed his rhetoric and said that he no longer wants to impeach anybody. So it's rather difficult to understand what he wants. Um, at the same time, we must not forget about his real actions while he was governor of Odessa Oblast and that uh, despite the high expectations for him on his post, he, there were not that many results. <clears throat> so, of course, Saakashvili just is very talented populist in mobilizing the protest, um, protest feelings of the crowd. But whether this will lead to real reforms, I don't know. We have seen that um, the first dispatch of foreign reformers in Ukraine, including many Georgian reformers, it basically failed. Some say that um, this is because they face the resistance of the authorities, but others say that nobody except Ukrainians will be able to actually change the system. And we have only ourselves to hope for. And it's interesting, I think the, the key thing to uh, to watch right now in the coming weeks is basically whether Saakashvili will be deported. There are rumors that he will be deported to Georgia, and in Georgia he will basically face a very, very difficult situation. Or he will be he will be staying in Ukraine, and uh, maybe he will be used even by, by Poroshenko guys, you know, as a kind of a politician that will be channeling this populist energy, because for, for Poroshenko... The key uh, opponent, I think, is Timoshenko, and Timoshenko is very smart in this pop populist, you know, rhetoric. Mm -hmm. So, so Saakashvili is very interesting whether he will play against Timoshenko or with her. Let's not forget that he recently got a visa for the Netherlands. So, whether he will be actually deported to Georgia is not that clear for me <laughs> where he will end up <laughs> in the end run. But uh, I think that, yes, um, basically when Poroshenko appointed his old friend Saakashvili in Ukraine, I think uh, one of the reasons was to use him as sort of a facade that Ukraine is changing and that reforms are coming. And look who we invited, such a high caliber guy. Um, so, Poroshenko used him before, and I'm wine. Why shouldn't he use them again? It's all possible. And um, I think uh, what is what is also interesting is um, basically the fact, and, and uh, here I come to the positive news, <laughs> uh, because we are all talking Hooray! about... You know, Finally, positive news! <laughs> yes, some negative news, because I, I mean, I personally, I try to, to, to see the Ukrainian situation as a... Is a very diverse, you know, and and we have some very uh, positive things to to follow. I think one of the key things is still, I mean, in in this war between anti-corruption institutions like NABU and the, the general prosecutor, what is positive is that uh, anti-corruption uh, bureau shows itself as a truly genuinely uh, independent institution, able to challenge the top officials. And I think this is this is the key. This is why the system so much resists, right? I agree with you, but at the same time, we shouldn't underestimate the smear campaign that has run against anti-corruption um, institutions and anti-corruption activists. And I'm just noticing very often that people distrust Nabu and people sort of have this hopeless attitude that Nabu is no better than anything else. So um, while I do agree that they have shown themselves as able to stand um, in opposition to the current regime, but they face a lot of challenges ahead you know, because of this public distrust. 
But let's let's hope. I mean, I still hope very much to the, that this anti. What I hope, right, is that Ukrainian authorities are always after Maidan in this sandwich situation, this double pressure from civil society and international society. And if we analyze the rhetoric of Poroshenko, you know, and and authorities and uh, of of the government. Sometimes that they they raise the issue which irritates everybody, international community and civil society, and then they they make a kind of a, a step back. I mean, there was this his a kind of a doubt about the need of anti-corruption court. Now he steps back. There were some other 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 instances as well. So I really I really think that this pressure should be should be should be stable. Uh, what kind of a the, the negative side of it is that the Saakashvili case, uh, it kind of a long-term negative uh, influence is that, uh, well, mid-term negative impact, is that it kind of a divided civil society, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, we see the clash in civil society, well, some, some, some saying that we are not for these radical anti-corruptionists, uh, some others are, you know, with Poroshenko and authorities because... Yeah, this is a situation of the war, etc. Well, I see that there are a lot of similarities in the Russian situation and how the Russian elites treat the opposition. Basically, the main tactic is to um, divide su- and rule. Su- suggest to the Russians that the new the opposition that can come it will be no better than those who rule now. And I see that this same tactic is being used um, to sow discord among Ukrainians and sort of despair and apathy, basically. And of course, that is what any ruling elite needs to preserve its rule. <laughs> so, um, of course, we... And it is working, I think, to a large extent, because society is tired and life is rather difficult in Ukraine now. Um, so I can only pray that the civil activists won't run out of energy and that our foreign partners won't either. <laughs> and so the sandwich effect will working. I think it's a very important point that you mentioned that life became really difficult. I mean, sometimes for our international audiences and partners, it's it, it's it's kind of out of the radar, the social oh, economic yes. situation. I mean, when, mm-hmm. when, when we are discussing pension reform, medical reform, reform of gas prices, it's kind of out of the radar, right? And like, especially with uh, requiring to raise the, the gas prices even more. I mean, that is just absolutely unrealistic, right? Yeah, now. I think it's it's uh, by by some of the international observers, it's just it's just only a question of you know uh, budget balance, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But you, sh- you should realize that some pensioners have their uh, utility prices higher than their pensions, and I mean. I mean, uh, we are really facing many people, many, many people beyond the poverty line. And this is something also not really addressed, uh, not uh, by this wider reformist agenda. And it is, of course, an issue that is addressed by populists. And it is an issue that the government should act. And therefore, we had, you know, a pension reform, which is very, 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 I, I would say, half successful because... It tried to address address this, you know, deficit issues, but it also tried to address the the, the very key point that the pensioners don't have money. Mm-hmm. Let me let me just think. Okay, we, we're talking about troubles, but to, what are positive things that you mentioned? And let me let me start myself. My favorite reform is that of decentralization. I think it is something that. Uh, 
is able to bring results and is already bringing results because Ukraine was a highly centralized country. Now we have these communities that have their own finances, have their own resources, etc. I think, well, I agree with you about the decentralization reform. I think maybe this is one of the key reforms that will stimulate Ukrainians to be more active in how the, the money is used because nothing makes people more active than seeing, seeing how their local money, the, the very palpable money that comes to the local scale, if it's funneled away, then of course they will notice it more than if it's going to the state coffers. So I think this will be um, very productive reform, um, even, even in the long run. Because basically, right now, we, we have to transition from this other state of relations between society and the authorities with a society that controls the authorities. And of course, this is key, decentralization. What are uh, some other positive things? For example, we can, we can talk about the relaunch of the economy. We can see the positive figures, which is kind of a very good because we had minus 15, I think, in 2014-15. And we see some of the, you know, visible trends. I mean, construction is already coming to uh, from this, you know, hole where where it was. What other things you mentioned, you, you noticed? I would mark the education reform. I know that many of our listeners will know the education reform by its scandalous article no number seven that made international headlines and is still making international headlines. But um, if we put this article aside, the whole reform looks very progressive to me and it's very, very, it cheers me that it was developed with um, participation of experts and teachers and everybody, all the stakeholders. Um, so I have very high hopes for this reform. <laughs> um, and um, what else? Oof. I would say that cultural life is born. Yes, I, have, I agree with you. And especially with cinema production, I think this is some of the things, really surprising things, because in the years of Ukrainian independence, we, Ukrainians, some, many Ukrainians just gave up on the idea of independent cinema. And right now, each week, there is some new film coming out, and sometimes you don't even have to, enough time to watch these all of these things. I think so, that this was also a result of a... Uh, state policy and, and mm -hmm. finally we see the effectiveness of the public policy also criticized by by many people but we see this quarter approach we see that kind of a, a, an attempt to f make more favorable conditions to Ukrainian production and we see the booming the booming uh, book market the booming cinema the booming music I think there are many good trends in music Mm -hmm. So I really, I'm kind of optimistic about that. I think uh, we never in the 20th century had such a, such a positive story with culture, maybe, maybe only compared to the 20s. I agree with you, yes. I'm, I hope that the music boom will follow the cinema boom and we will see the emergence of new Ukrainian um, bands. Because I mean, we have to understand that Ukraine, for throughout its all of its years of independence, it was under the dominance of the Russian uh, culture culture market and media market. And I mean, just so you understand, it's like Hollywood's impact all around all over the world. This was the impact of the Russian media market in Ukraine. And of course, part of the reason that Ukraine was so undeveloped and all these cultural initiatives is because 
because of this influence of overwhelming influence of Russian um, media products. And it's important to yeah. stress that it was a soft power and it is still the soft power of Russia. Oh, it is I mean, still. Mm -hmm. All these TV series that promote, you know, heroic Russian soldiers or Russian pol uh, police officers, whatever. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, it had a very important impact on, on Ukrainians. So we have to keep that in mind as well. Uh, let me uh, to address the, the, I mean, we will probably finish with this topic, but it's we're still the, the most important topic, the war. The war, Donbass, uh, and annexed Crimea, etc. What, what developments you see in this situation? Hmm. Developments. It's hard to say of any developments because it is the protected war is just going on for the third year in a row. So, um, I guess... The main impact is just drawing the demoralizing Ukraine, I guess that is the development and that's basically that's the idea of this war that's um, just gradually make Ukrainians more and more tired of it. Um, so I think that maybe Ukrainians are getting used to the idea that this war is here to stay and this frozen conflict is maybe here to stay. And, and it's not the frozen so far. It's it's well, yes, there are. It it can be frozen, yeah, but still we have. I mean, it's important, I think, to underline that we still have reports about casualties. Uh, maybe not every day, but but every week. Basically. Um. Well, it's maybe every other day, and some days there are more than one. And of course, this this continues to be a s endless source of tragedy for Ukrainians and. That is very difficult also for just the general perception of life because according to polls, Ukraine made it up to the three most miserable countries in the world. And it's not only about poverty, it's also because of the war, the endless war and seemingly hopeless war. Um, it continues to be a terrible burden on the people that are living in these areas and we know that many the idp crisis that has gone unnoticed by most of the world because the idps have stayed in ukraine um, many of them are just going back to their homes because they were not able to find a job a place to live other places in ukraine and of course we have to remember that ukraine is a poor country so like finding <laughs> money in order to rent a place somewhere else somewhere like outside of your home city may be a challenge and moving is also a challenge. So we see many IDPs actually going back because they do not have a place to stay. Um, I guess with Crimea, we see intensified repressions. We see more and more political prisoners being taken in Crimea. Um, we see how the Russian propaganda machine uses these political prisoners in order to generate its uh, its stories, its disinformation stories uh, that aim to smear Ukraine. Um, and we see more and more repressions against Crimean Tatars. And I guess what the situation in Crimea, it really gives no hope that um, the situation will improve there for Crimean Tatars and basically anybody that dares to object to Russian occupation. Um, I think this is a very important topic. Uh, I just want to remind that Ali is also an editor of the site which is called Let My People Go. Uh, so I invite everybody to, to look at it. Basically it collects information about all the political 
prisoners, Ukrainian political prisoners, in, including Crimean Tatars in, in Russia. And I think we will uh, try to cover this topic in one of the next podcasts. But uh, also let me ask about, well, well, let me first maybe share my impressions about the political situation because it's uh, it's important how basically Minsk process, which was a kind of a, well, let's let's be let's be frank. Minsk process, Minsk deals of 2014-2015 was a kind of a peace uh, conditions um, fabricated by by Russia and imposed by Russia on on its terms on Ukraine, uh, putting it in a basically no exit situation. Uh, and now they prove to be unimplementable, I would say, because this is this is their goal to put peace on 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 their terms. For example, just one example to have first uh, elections, local elections, and only then withdrawal of of Russian forces and uh, control of the border by by Ukrainian forces. Now we have. I think the agreement of everybody that it's not working, that there should be something else, be it uh, peacekeepers or whatever else, but still nobody nobody knows what it will be. Well, um, <clears throat> regarding the Minsk accords themselves, um, there is actually nothing stating that elections should be hold, held before withdrawal of um, foreign troops. It's just um, Russia's um, reading of the document. Ukraine has a totally another interpretation and Ukraine insists that um, all foreign troops should be withdrawn and Ukraine should establish control of the borders. But rather, I guess it's the ambiguous wording of the t- document itself that allows for these different interpretations. Um, but yes, basically the Minsk Accords have failed to stop the conflict in Ukraine. They have succeeded in freezing the conflict in Ukraine. Um, I would say that experts differ on whether this document is a good one to follow. (laughs) But we see that um, until Russia has the genuine um, will to stop the conflict, and and until Russia decides to stop the war, the war will not be stopped with the Minsk process. But of course, right now it is a major... um, um, the sanctions imposed on Russia for its aggression in Ukraine, they are all based on whether Ukraine, Russia is implementing the Minsk process. So for Ukraine to withdraw out of it, um, it's, I guess, it would raise the question of sanctions. And I think that is something Ukraine does not want to do. Yeah, it's very, and it's very important to, to remember how how difficult the Minsk, uh, the Minsk Accords, uh, how difficult they are perceived in Ukraine. Because there is these arguments uh, that basically they are linked to sanctions, therefore we should stick to them. And there is another argument that they are basically a peace process in Russian terms. And there is a huge debate, also very politicized. And uh, 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 for any, any Ukrainian ruler, it will be very difficult. Maybe it will be even... Uh, even suicidal to to say that I'm gonna implement Minsk Accords. Well, right of now. course, this year there were also many um, discussions about reconciliation with Donbass and how it should look like. And of course, this is, as you say, it, it will be just extremely difficult for anybody that undergoes this process because imagine that the Minsk process does work and Ukraine does get con- regain control of Donbass. What do we do with the population there? Like, with maybe thirty percent of them are hostile or even more to Ukraine. 
what do we do with the propaganda narratives which which they had been fed? What what do we do with the entrenched um, stereotypes that are present in in Ukraine, like everywhere towards Donbass and in Donbass towards Western Ukraine? These are all things that did not happen yesterday. <laughs> they were all cultivated throughout many years of Ukrainian independence, and basically, and I think to a large extent, the conflict in Donbass was a result of the state's absent absence of policy to to generate some sort of cohesion in Ukrainian society in its different regions. Um, so, I guess, of course, a lot of work remains to be done. I think Ukraine needs to decide for itself um, that it definitely does want Donbass back and that it does want to find reconciliation with the people living there and it's not only fighting for land. Uh, because... Um, Mm -hmm. Because there are many discussions even now, and they were started a long time ago, that Ukraine doesn't actually need Donbass because um, the people living there, they will vote for all the pro-Russian forces that have been holding Ukraine back and dividing it, and etc., etc. And um, to a large extent, yes, that will happen. <laughs> Um, so, I guess Ukraine does need to decide for itself that it wants Donbass and that it is willing to work to get them back. Yeah, and I think uh, it is also something very difficult, uh, because from the psychological point of view, but also, well, we understand that the more we are losing time, the more the time is passing, the more we are losing time, and the more we are losing these territories, because there is a quasi-state structure, there are state institutions, there is... A, uh, certain economy out there. There are there is a ruble zone already. There are Russian products, etc., etc. Well, I'm not sure that we're really losing them because just um, I, sometimes I read like blog posts of secret undercover journalists working there, and they say that everybody is so tired of what is going on there, the, the total chaos and absence of normal life, and they would actually like to be part of Ukraine and have normal life again. So perhaps the more that they see of the chaos there, the more they will get disenchanted with all this idea of, an, of a separate state. Yeah, but state. We, we agree that basically, as you said earlier, that without Russian will, there will be nothing. I mean, of and, and, and this, in this situation, the question I'm asking myself, because we are reading uh, this war situation through the prism of... Uh, you know, the separatist movement backed by Russians and then Minsk agreement, which, whose the goal is to bring these territories back to Ukraine. But the narrative, the alternative narrative could be that Russia renounced this idea already and that it will use these territories in a way that it used South Ossetia and Abkhazia in the 90s and 2000, just a kind of a destabilizing region, and at some point, which in some point it will annex at it, as it annexed Crimea and semi-annexed these Georgian territories. So uh, in this sense, uh, we can be in a totally different world. Well, I do. Um, yeah, I agree. Well, basically right now, um, Russia is using these territories to destabilize Ukraine. And of course, that was the first goal, I guess, because Ukraine that wanted to break through of Russian Russian um, grip and maybe join NATO and move towards the EU and uh, these territories are of course holding Ukraine back. 
Um, it is hard to identify what Russia will do next, but mm, just judging by the fact of the existence of these other territories and these other frozen conflicts and gray zones, there is nothing to suggest that it will do the same in Ukraine. And whether Ukraine will figure out how to prevent this from happening, of course, is a question. Um, I guess a large, a large, um, what contributes to Russia keeping its control over these territories is the illegal coal trade that is going on, uh, because of of course there it's it's a bit it's financially strenuous to support these territories, and Russia wants them to earn money for themselves, and for this they need to trade, and the only thing that they can trade right now is the coal. Um, so <clears throat> the illegal coal trade that is going on through Russia and with coal from the laws ending up even in EU countries such as Poland, this all contributes to the status quo being preserved. Yeah, and uh, maybe the last point about the war, also a kind of a reminder to our listeners, is that uh, the war is a very tragic thing in Ukraine and the, the number of ca casualties is huge, it's uh, over 10,000 I think. It, it's mm. only official figures and I think the real number is much higher. We have one million point five uh, hundred thousand, uh, also official figures, but maybe higher of IDPs, the uh, internally displaced persons. Most of them stayed within the Ukrainian territory. Some of them fled to Russia, by the way. But uh, it is important to uh, to remember that the war covers just about how much four or five percent of Ukrainian territory not more. So when we talk about the war in eastern Ukraine, it's not the war in the whole of eastern Ukraine. In Kyiv you don't really see the signs of the war, except for some people in the uniforms, some soldiers who are coming back from the front. In Lviv you don't feel, feel it. In Kharkiv or Dnipro you feel it a little bit better, a little bit more. In Kramatorsk or, I don't know, in Severodonetsk or even more. But still, it's, it's, it's not the cities in which you have the war. And even in Mariupol, the, the large port city in the southern Donbass, a city with a Greek name, Mariupol, uh, it's on the front line. But basically, if you come here, you see a normal city functioning. So it's important to remember that uh, as well, I think. Mm -hmm. So we're going to finish on that. So this was the Ukraine World Podcast. We tried to just to talk about Ukrainian developments in order to make them more understandable to international audiences. Uh, we had Alashandra, a prominent editor of Euromaidan Press website. You can go to her site. It's uh, a website functioning since Euromaidan protest in 2013-14. My name is Volodymyr Yermolko. I'm editor-in-chief of Ukraine World Initiative by Internews Ukraine. Uh, stay in touch and I think our next uh, podcast will be will be focused on political prisoners in Russia. Thank you. Thank you.